Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. I'm Mandy Jackson Beverly. Join me as I chat with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities and our environment. To help the show reach more people, please share with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to our 100th episode. Thank you so much for listening and for everybody who has supported the podcast by either donating through PayPal or Patreon. And if you've shared the podcast with family and friends, thank you, or left a review on your favorite podcast listening platform, thank you. Today, I'm chatting with author Beth Kirshner. Beth loves stories that capture the many truths that are embodied in different people's perspectives. Her writing has moved from poetry to travel journals to short stories to the novel Copper Divide. When not writing, she works as a software engineer, flies single-engine airplanes, and enjoys exploring Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Hi, Beth, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Before discussing your book, Copper Divide, I'd like to learn about you, where you were born and raised, and how you found your way to Michigan, and where you're currently living. Well, I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, right on the shores of Lake Ontario, and I've been writing ever since I was, as long as I can remember. Um, And I also grew up with a lot of snow. So upstate New York is well known uh, for snow. I mean, we're just down the road from Buffalo, and that often makes the news. And I'm from Rochester, which is number two. But uh, so, you know, there was uh, a lot of snow. It wasn't unusual for the back door of my house to be snowed in. And we could, like, as a kid, make little snow forts in the drifts. So, uh, so when I started looking for colleges, I uh, wasn't deterred by the large amount of snow that was forecast up in the UP where this story takes place and where I ended up going to college. So um, I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in computer science at an engineering school called Michigan Technological University. And this university is, it's just down the road from Calumet. It's, you know, right in the heart of where this story took place. And when you landed on campus, were you shocked by the amount of snow? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I, um, you know, I never made a campus visit. <laughs> we didn't have a ton of money. So I just looked at the brochures and I'm like, that one looks good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And what was more interesting to me, I mean, I expected the snow. I didn't expect the snow to start in October. That was a surprise. And straight through May. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time. Now, your book, Copper Divide, is based around the Italian Hall disaster, which happened on Wednesday, December 24th in 1913. The story looks at the unraveling friendship of two women amidst the tension between the Calamat and Heckler Mining Company, the Citizens Alliance, and the Western Foundation of Miners. So now we have all that knowledge. Can you give us a synopsis of your story, please? Yeah, I mean, I think you just gave a really great short synopsis, <laughs> but I'll give a slightly longer short synopsis of it. <laughs> yes, please do. So um, it's a historical novel, clearly set in 1913. It was set during what I'd like to call the sunset of the Kiwanis 
peninsula's prominence as the world supplier of copper. This was the area where most of the copper in the world was developed. So it was the state's economic powerhouse, and it was a huge blow when all the miners went on strike there. So um, it was uh, an interesting air time, interesting place, and I wanted to dive into that a little more. So uh, I created three protagonists. Uh, there's Hannah, which is a Jewish shopkeeper's daughter. Nelma is her friend and is the wife of a striking miner. And Russell is a scab miner brought in to break the strike. Uh, during this time, there were thousands of people protesting and rioting in the streets. The National Guard was sent in and it stayed for months. Uh, there was a great deal of violence on, on both sides and distrust between the two groups, which is not in some ways too dissimilar to what we have today. <laughs> yes, that's true. I found it interesting that while the mining companies provided for the workers and their families, the schools and churches, it came with a hidden cost or a hidden agenda. I read that even if the workers were found drinking or drunk after hours, they were called on it, which seems unfair and controlling. It was a very paternalistic society. Yeah, very, very much so. And were there tensions between the different nationalities that were living in Calumet at the time? There seemed to be, from what I could understand, tension between ethnic groups that had been there a while and ethnic groups which were newer. So, you know, there was uh, a certain grouping of immigrants who didn't speak proper English, who didn't dress like Americans, who didn't act like Americans. One of the interesting things I found when I lived up there, when I first moved up there, is there are a ton of bars. <laughs> There's also a ton of churches. Like every block has a different church. And it wasn't until I researched this book that I discovered that's because the, the mining companies gave every ethnic group a plot of land for their own church. So there was, you know, there was an Italian and a Croatian and an English. And, and so, in, you know, in some ways, the mining companies kind of contributed to this divide by keeping people separate in their own groups. Yes, I'm guessing that at first glance, it seemed great what they were doing. But you're right, it separated people. Yeah. Your story opens with Hannah contemplating the killing of two men and how the strike and walkout at the mines had interfered with her heading to college. I enjoyed that touch, by the way. It made it seem very real. But then you move on to Nelma's story. Were these characters based on real people living in Calumet at the time, or are they purely fictitious? Uh, a little of both. A little of both. Most of the events in the story did happen. There were, was a murder of two striking miners, you know, right at the beginning of the story. The characters were mostly inspired, I would say inspired by actual people. <laughs> I didn't necessarily, you know, intentionally say this is going to be someone else. But Hannah was more of a, she was more fictional than most of the others. She was more my creation. I talked to people and learned a little bit about the small Jewish community up there and just kind of took little bits and pieces of day-to-day -day life and, and put that into her. But uh, Nelma was mostly inspired by uh, a labor activist by the name of Annie Clements. 
Um, she was nicknamed Big Annie, and she was uh, she was pretty famous in her time as a you know a very strong-willed woman, and was you know often leading the parades and helping to organize. And and Frank, the labor organizer that stays with Nelma, he was uh, originally I put an actual historical character Charles Moyer, who was the president of the you know the union in the story because he actually did come into the Calumet area during the strike but uh i decided that that i i wanted to have a little more freedom with the character so i turned him into frank <laughs> and how much of an influence did woody guthrie's song 1913 massacre play in igniting your interest in the italian hall disaster you know it's it's interesting that it wasn't the initial thing that that in, initiated my interest i mean i i was vaguely aware of the song, but when I was in college, I took a class on local history. And I think that was really the catalyst. I was kind of amazed that there were many older generation people living in the UP at that time that were, I would say, politically to the left of all the engineering students. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of interesting because usually you think of students as, you know, rebel rousers, but engineers tend to be more conservative and the the older generation kind of grew up in this era of unionism and socialism not that they're the same but but there there was you know a cross cross fertilization of those ideas at the time but after i wrote the book i went to a writers conference in new mexico and there was a, it was as a it was a great uh conference they had a novel writing workshop there were about half a dozen of us we all workshopped each other's novels from start to finish, which was uh, very helpful. But every day we workshopped a different novel. And it, when, when it was my turn, the author, to my surprise, started the day with a recording of Arlo Guthrie singing his father's song, which I, you know, it just touched me. It was, it was uh, really, really special. And, and uh, you know, most of the other writers at the time were not aware that this was an actual event. But he knew all about it. You know, he grew up in the Boston area and he said, oh, yeah, I heard about this in the union halls when I was a kid. <laughs> That's impressive. And how wonderful that he played that song for you. I agree. And did you spend time in Calumet interviewing people who'd lost relatives in the disaster or research through archives? Um, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to talk to many relatives. I did talk to people who grew up in the area uh, stayed with friends, and I I heard stories of hearsay of so and so and so and so who still took sides in the strike, you know, a generation or two later. But what I did do when I was up there is that the university has a great historical archive. Uh, the university is called Michigan Technological University, and so the archives are called the Tech Archives. <laughs> they're not technical; they're very low tech, you know. <laughs> but um, it was—I mean, talk about going down a rabbit hole! I had so much fun researching for this book. And in, in those archives, there were just newspapers and diaries and pictures and maps. And then here in Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan has uh, an archive of its own called the Bentley Historical Library. So uh, between those two, you know, I got to learn about actual people at the time, transportation, food, fashion. Um, you know, you start going down that rabbit hole and wondering, well, how did people get around town? You know, what did 
things cost. Yes, the parts of the book where you talk about what everyone is eating or how Nelmo prepares the bread. These moments are what makes the story real and the characters real. I appreciate that it, it felt real to you. I really, it, it felt real to me by the time I finished it, but I was very close to it. <laughs> Yes, I've no doubt the characters entrenched themselves in your brain in every waking and sleeping hour. <laughs> now, I would love to hear about your publishing journey from a finished manuscript to an agent and publishing deal. Yeah, well, I mean, as a first-time novelist, I'm sure uh, everybody who goes through this path, it's a, it's a learning experience, right, when you do anything for the first time. So, I knew it would be difficult. I wrote the novel while working full-time and it took me about three years. And I had the support of a great writer's workshop. So, you know, locally we critiqued each other's writing and rewriting it. So after three years, I was ready, right? <laughs> I was ready. I knew it was going to be tough. Knew there could be a lot of rejections. I started sending it out. And, and then every once in a while, I would get a, a nice letter saying, well, we really liked it, but it's not ready at this time. And it caught me by surprise, you know, but, um, but it, it, after about a year, I, I decided I needed to take a break. And um, I set it aside and I intended to get back to it soon. <laughs> and, um, and 10 years went by. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then, you know, it was just there in the back. And I'm like, I can't believe it's 10 years. So I picked it back up and I read it from front to back and I rewrote some chapters. And this time I sent it out directly to some independent publishers and I got two offers. So I was, I was thrilled. <laughs> well, your patience paid off, which is great. Now, your writing has moved from poetry and travel journals to short stories and the full-length novel. Are you currently working on another book? I am, actually. I, um, I, I always am writing something, but um, I really enjoyed immersing myself in a novel. You know, like, like you said, when it feels real, that's satisfying both to me and satisfying to hear that. So one of the things I liked about Copper Divide for me is I wanted to bring to the paper and share with people the setting. I wanted it to be very much alive because I felt it's it's kind of a character in and of itself for me. So I've traveled a lot in the Southwest and uh, I've got a friend down there since, you know, I'm not going to say how many years, <laughs> but um, I'm thinking about more of a not you know a today or slightly in the future story because there's you know it's got an interesting past historically that area but there's also a history you know a future as we were just talking about fires there's water shortages high desert beautiful rock mesas and just so much variety in the people living there you know from cities to pueblos to ranches so yeah, I've been um, kind of getting to know some characters that are going to be in my next novel. So the setting is in the New Mexico area? New Mexico, Utah, South, Southern Utah, New Mexico, Northern Arizona. Yeah. We're so spoiled here in the United States because the geography is so vast and so different from state to state. It's truly magnificent. Yeah, I spent a lot of the pandemic doing road trips out west that was a safe way to travel right so we went to 
almost all the national parks in, in Utah. There's national monuments that are kind of like national parks and there's state parks. And so, yeah, we covered in the last year and a half, a large part of Colorado, Utah, Northern Arizona, saw the North Rim of the Grand Canyon for the first time. I've seen the Southern Rim a ton of times. So, I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, I was just speechless. And have you spent much time in the Rocky Mountains? I have, yeah. You know, the good thing about having college friends is they disperse. <laughs> and they give you places to visit. Yeah, I agree. That's the great thing about having friends all over the world. Okay, so your final question. What is one book you'd like to see more people reading? And what are you currently reading? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was thinking about, there's an author that I discovered um, a couple years ago. His name's Mohsen Hamid. Not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but um, he, uh, I read or I listened to one of his books on an audio tape when I was driving from the Calumet area back down to where I live now in southern, southeastern Michigan. And um, the, the book was called Exit West. And just to, to I mean, it just, it's about a nine hour drive. <laughs> so I was looking for a book that would take about nine hours to listen to. And I just was like, this one got good reviews. I never heard of them before, but it just, it was an amazing story. And um, I've binge read all of his books now, but I would recommend, uh, yeah, Mohsen Hamid with uh, Exit Rat West. And then um, Moth Smoke is another really good uh, story of his. And um, I'm currently, I'm rereading Damascus Gate by Robert Stone. It just, it popped into my head. I read it a number of years ago, and I don't usually read a book twice, but uh, I was just thinking about the plotting of that story, and it's kind of a literary thriller, and I wanted to learn from that for the book that I'm writing now. So. <laughs> well, that's good, and that's why writers are prolific readers. And you were talking about rereading. You see, I'm a prolific rereader, and there are certain times of the year when I'll pick up the same book and reread it. I, I just love it. I think it's a sense of security for me. But mostly it's just because the books I choose are so well written. It's like submersing myself in a hot bubble bath. It's comforting. I'm I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, there's so many great books to read out there. It's, that's the thing that holds me back from rereading. But this one, I was like, oh, I got I to gotta read this again. I don't remember everything. So... <laughs> as long as you're enjoying it. And I look forward to chatting with you when your next book is published. I will definitely let you know. And um, thank you again for reading my book and for conversing about it. My pleasure. It's been fun. And I wish you all the best of luck with Copper Divide. Thank you so much. And um, have a wonderful new year. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to www.patreon.com forward slash the bookshop podcast and become a patron of the show. For a few dollars a month, you get behind the scenes videos and your contributions support the production and editing costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.
theme music provided by Brian Beverly.